0: Well, good evening. It is good to see you all out this evening. I had to, to laugh in the middle of leaning on the everlasting arms a moment ago because Kenny said between verses, I don't know if you caught it because he kind of said a little bit quieter, but he said, good job leaning. <laughs> and it just was cracking up that uh, here we're, they're, they're trying to get us to lean and I think we're all kind of just like, So, uh, I appreciate that, Kenny, in drawing this out for us. Uh, Take your Bibles. We're turning to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Continuing our study there. Ruth chapter 1, we have concluded. And in concluding it, it has been a series of bad news. Bad things happening. uh, Things that one one bit of bad news following after the other bit of bad news. The events of chapter 1 in the book of Ruth reminded me of the story of a middle aged man who had gone into. Uh, the doctor for a routine physical. And the nurse came in. You know how the nurse does. She comes in and she asks you all your important information, vital information. She takes measurements and blood pressure and so forth. And she came in uh, to this man's room and uh, was updating his medical information. And she asked him, How much do you weigh? He said, Oh, about 165 pounds. <laughs> Somewhat skeptical. A little suspicious, the nurse said, uh, why don't you step onto the digital scale for me? The gentleman stands on the scale and she goes, mm, it's actually 210 exactly. <laughs> he goes back to sit on the, you know, they never have a chair for you. It's always the, the bed thing. The, he's sitting on the end of the bed and she says, so uh, my next item here is how tall are you? And he said, well... Last time I measured about six feet tall. She looked him over and then asked him to step up to the measuring charts posted on the wall. She said, well, you're actually five foot eight and a half. She prepared to take his blood pressure and wrap the cuff around his arm. And she begins to take the blood pressure and she gasps. Sir, your blood pressure is extremely high. High, he said. What would you expect? I came in here, and I was tall and lanky, and you've made me short and fat. <laughs> so far, the book of Ruth has been that, hasn't it? You start out with one expectation going one way, and it has gone the other way. Elimelech and his wife and two boys travel to Moab. It's been a series of bad news. Now, Naomi, with only Ruth, comes back to Bethlehem. The title that we are focusing on tonight is not a chance, not a chance. I will tell you that the outline that is in your bulletin is only partially right. Uh, We're only going to spend time in the first uh, section. I thought I was very ambitious. I was hoping we could get 10 verses. I originally set out, just so you know, I'd originally set out to do 12 verses. Then by the time I put the outline all together, I determined that we're only going to get about 10 done. And then as I finished everything, I realized, you know what, we're going to get four. So we're going to get four tonight. And so we're going to focus on primarily that first point. And that first point begins with a biography of Boaz. And I wanted to spend special time here. Because there's a lot for us to learn about godly men and women through the biography of Boaz. He's the last character that we are to become acquainted with, at least the last named character that we're to become acquainted with in the book of Ruth. And so we're going to spend some time focusing in on him because the story has crescendoed to this point where Boaz is introduced. And in one verse we learn more about Boaz than you may know about some people over a lifetime. We learn a lot about this individual and Samuel draws out Uh, much about his personality, much about his character, and we have the joy of studying that this evening. And so we're going to spend our time here in verses 1 through 4, and there will be more than enough for us to build upon. And I feel it's important. I was going to kind of skip through it, cover it as much as we could, but move on, only spend about a third of our time there. And I realized that that was probably doing a great disservice to what Samuel is trying to do in the book of Ruth as he was inspired of the Holy Spirit uh, to write down this very important narrative for us. And so we're going to pause, slow down, and look into just these four verses this evening. And as we do so, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have arrived at the end of chapter 1 in the book of Ruth, and we are discouraged by the enormous challenges that Naomi has had to face And either we are discouraged by them or we are discouraged by her responses to them. And either way, we are uh, with her frustrated at the series of events that have taken place in this narrative that is to proclaim the Redeemer. So tonight, as we begin to turn the corner in this crescendo that Samuel has built to, we are thankful for this peak in the narrative, an opportunity to see you at work. Even though there is very little mention of you to this point in the letter and in this narrative, we see your hand through all, orchestrating in every detail. Tonight I pray that you would give us understanding hearts as we spend the evening in these four verses, that we would understand the character of a godly man living in the midst of an ungodly, immoral age. We praise you that this is far more than a love story. It's far more than a fairy tale that would be passed on from generation to generation. It is a true narrative, actual people involved in demonstrating the great and wonderful truth of our Redeemer. So, Lord, we recognize the eternal weight of this letter. We recognize the great value it is for us to study, and I pray that we'd be found faithful this evening in doing so, that your name would be glorified, that we'd be encouraged and edified as we study the example of Boaz, really a character study of him. But ultimately, it's because he was emulating and illustrating for us who you are. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding hearts that we may be like Boaz even in an immoral, ungodly age. Give me the words to speak tonight that they would be from you, that our hearts would be willing to listen and to apply what we learn in these principles and lessons from the biography of Boaz. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we begin to study the biography of Boaz, I'm going to read part of the text for us in just a moment. But as we do so, the author builds, author being Samuel, most likely, and most certainly, the author is Samuel, and he's building with anticipation. We have a very low point. We've come all the way through this very low point in chapter one, and we're at the lowest of the low. In fact, uh, so low at this point that. Naomi, who has been living in the land of Moab, decides to return where things were so bad they had to leave before. That is how low Naomi has gotten. And she has declared to those who knew her, she said, don't call me gracious one anymore, call me bitter one, Myra, the bitter one. And that is where we, in essence, left her last week. And now we begin in chapter 2. As we begin in chapter 2, Samuel has built with great anticipation and hope by pointing to the news that we have been waiting for all narrative. The knight in shining armor is about to appear on the scene, and as he does so, we're going to learn of his character. And we get a short biography of Boaz in one verse. We see it then emulated in the verses that follow, and really through the rest of the book, but we get a short biography right here in the first verse of chapter 2, which says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And really, it's not even just one verse, it's one word. It's one word. And out of that one word, we're going to get four characteristics of Boaz. We're going to see those emulated through verses 2, 3, and 4 as well. We're going to see those following in the rest of the book, but we see it really found in this one word of a worthy man. We're going to spend time there this evening as we recognize first that Boaz was respected in his community. So as we get into the idea of these four characteristics of Boaz, it is my challenge to you that you would pick up and learn from them and determine to be like Boaz. These four characteristics ought to be four ways that you illustrate Christ likeness. We've been studying that in the Thessalonian church in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been encouraged by that study to practice faith, love and hope and to demonstrate as we saw this morning that you are elect of God. Four characteristics of that are demonstrated by Boaz. And the first is that he was respected in his community. We see that in this first word. And I want to read for us, before we get into it too deep, I want to read for us the four verses we're going to study tonight. I've read verse 1, now let me finish in 2, 3, and 4. The scripture says, And Ruth, a Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I have found favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Boaz is said to be, in verse 1, a worthy man. Your translation may have some other variation that may say a man of great wealth or man of great means or two ways that other modern translations have translated this word and isn't it fascinating that worth and wealth are equated as the same and so there's some struggles in actual definition for this word for worthy as the ESV translates it and so the we do have some examples of what it means, where the word was used other places. So a good Bible study technique, an important Bible study technique, is how did the author use that word in other places within the book, specifically within the paragraph, if it's not in the paragraph, the chapter, if it's not in the chapter, the same book, how does the author use that word? And the author does use the word again, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But then it's also used, and it's important to understand, the books that were written at the same time, or of the same era. And so in this case, the word is used in the book of Judges and in the book of 2 Samuel. And so we're going to look at those in just a moment. But we also recognize that if you can't find it in its era, and it's in in its genre, its type of writing, then you are to look outside of that and see how Scripture translates it. And we have a couple examples of that. In doing that, that's why we have some variations in the definition of this word, or the description of this word. So let's work our way through them, because each one of them are important and worthy of our time uh, to spend here. The first, as we understand the same Hebrew word, is used in Joshua chapter 6. So since we have done our work through the book of Joshua, let us go back to Joshua chapter 6 and read uh, this text, Joshua 6 verse 2 where the same word is used. And this is used in this sense, in, in reference to Jericho, verse 1 of chapter 6 in the book of Joshua. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of worth, valor the same word same hebrew word that is used and both here in joshua 6 2 and 2nd samuel chapter 17 verse 8 it is in reference to valiant men or mighty warriors so it is used in the military aspects so file that away for just a moment we're going to come back the word is also used beyond its military context and in first samuel chapter 9 verse 1 it is used of men of influence of a man of influence and so the word is used there in such a way that it would be an excellent man or a worthy man and that is the way it is used going back to ruth ruth chapter 3 verse 11 and notice how it is used here this is boaz speaking verse 11 of chapter 3 and he says and now my daughter do not fear I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. An excellent woman, some of your translations may say. So Boaz picks up on the same word that is used to describe him by Samuel. He uses it to describe Ruth. So that's, there's a lot of weight there when we try to understand the definition of a word. And then we also recognize that the other usage comes in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 20, and it refers to a person of great wealth in 2 Kings 15, 20. So we're all over the map, but let's dissect them just a little bit. Remember, if you will, that the book of Ruth likely took place during the time of Gideon. And during the time of Gideon, during the period of the judges, there was 300, what kind of men? Valiant men who were chosen to be those who would represent Israel against the Midianites. It's possible, and some scholars believe, that Boaz was one of the 300. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But it is possible. And so it's possible that Samuel was alluding uh, to that connection by using this word. Others... And I think it's valuable for us to consider this as well. Others recognize that Boaz was evidently a man of great wealth. How do we know? He has land, he has fields, he has servants. He was a man of great wealth. And so he fit into the category of 2 Kings 15-20 as well. But then we also know that he was a man of great wealth appreciation he was appreciated well by those in his influence and he was a worthy man as he describes ruth to be a worthy woman so it could be argued that all three of these definitions are true of boaz that's why i think it's worth us going through them was boaz one of gideon's mighty men valiant men maybe The time frame certainly could be the case, and he is a standout from his community, so it is possible that he is. Was he a wealthy man? Certainly. In fact, it is said, and some scholars point to this direction, that Samuel, in this one word, is describing uh, Boaz as a man who could lift both Naomi and Ruth out of their impoverishment. So it's possible that that is true. And was he a worthy man? Well, the Lord uses him to be the pattern of the kinsman-redeemer. So the Lord views him as a man of high esteem. So all three of these are likely true of Boaz. Interestingly enough, all of these definitions, all of them, could point to Boaz. He was a man of honor, integrity, and wealth. So in light of that, think of the biography that Samuel just gave to us in one word about Boaz. This is a man of high esteem, high integrity, high honor, high wealth. But he is also a man who is spiritually concerned. He's respected in the community. But he's a man who's spiritually concerned. Let me back up for you as we think through where we've been in chapter 1 and where we ended, or where the book of Judges, we didn't study the book of Judges together, but where the book of Judges ends. Go all the way back to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. We started here in the book of Ruth, and we're returning here because it's important that this is a statement that refers to all of this period, all of, these age, all of this age of the Judges, And the scripture says this, in those days, the very last verse of the very last chapter of the book of Judges, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet there was one man, at least one man, one man who has made his way into the biblical account, one man who was spiritually concerned. Think about that in light of what we have studied of Elimelech. Elimelech was not spiritually concerned. How do we know? He went to Moab when he should have remained in Israel. He fled the, the famine for a better life on the other side of the fence where the grass was greener. Instead of recognizing that the judgment of the Lord who had fallen upon the nation of Israel, instead of calling the people of Israel back to repentance, Elimelech leaves. And the cost of his leaving is he loses his own life and the the lives of his two sons with no heir to follow after. Now, Naomi has returned back to Bethlehem. Instead of being a gracious woman that she left, she is now a bitter woman that has returned. She's returned with Ruth alone. The shining light of hope throughout the first chapter. Boaz... Is spiritually concerned. Elimelech was the opposite. Notice how we know Boaz was spiritually concerned. Go all the way to verse 4. I know we're taking the verses out of order, but we're doing a biographical sketch of Boaz here. Verse 4 of chapter 2 in the book of Ruth says, "Then And, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now, I want you to picture this in your mind's eye, if you can, and and Bethlehem sits a little bit about halfway up a hill, and the hill that Bethlehem sits on, and we can see all of this still today, there's a a rocky ridge or kind of a, a rocky mound that sits above Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem is nestled right into the hillside here, and as you look out towards the east, out towards Moab, you have a couple fields. One of those is what is today called the shepherd's field, the field where the shepherds likely were at when baby Jesus was born. That's not very far away. In fact, as you leave Bethlehem, if you were to take the road and you were to go over towards Jericho or towards the Dead Sea out out of the city of Bethlehem, you wind your way down out of the city to the east, and you pass through the shepherd's fields. If you stop there, And you look off to the north, there is two round hills, and in the base, in in between the two hills is this long, low-flowing valley. That was likely Boaz's field. So it was about two miles away from Bethlehem, in a uh, nestled little valley where these were the common fields of Israel and the common fields of those from Bethlehem, and likely Boaz's field was there. And you can imagine the scene, because here's the landowner. The harvesters are out in the field, in verse 4, and They are cutting down the grain and they are preparing it. And so you have all the busyness that is going on there. And Boaz is there to inspect that work being done because this is his crop that's being harvested. And he looks over to the gleaners. We're going to talk about them in just a moment. Because in verse 5, he's going to pay attention to them. We're not going to get there tonight, but in verse 5, he's going to look over there and notice one in particular. But in verse 4, he's come, he's arrived to the field, you can imagine the entourage that is with him, and as he arrives to the field, he greets the workers on this morning as they are beginning their work. And does he tell them, shalom, peace be with you? No, that's the common greeting. If you were to meet somebody in Israel today and uh, you were to greet them in a common greeting, you would say, shalom, peace be with you. But notice again what Boaz said when he got to the field. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. That's a very different statement than peace be with you. Boaz intentionally expresses spiritual concern for his workers. We could have... He could have rather passed by with shalom, this typical greeting. But instead, Boaz is saying to his employees that he wants them to not only be blessed, but to be blessed in the sense that Yahweh was with them. Blessed in their work and blessed in their lives. This is a different kind of greeting. This is a special greeting to them. Remember when this is. These days when Israel is perhaps just now recovering from the famine. Perhaps that is why Naomi looks back to the west and sees greener pastures on the fence on the side of the fence she used to be in. If this is of the time of Gideon, the Midianites may have just been destroyed and Naomi is returning with Ruth now, but the famine may or may not be over. It appears to be over, but these are still very early days. And Boaz, when he enters into the area where his employees are, is more concerned about their spiritual well-being than he is about a bumper crop. He's concerned about those who work for him. And how do we know that this was not just a one-time greeting or that Samuel's is in some way emboldening or emphasizing more than actuality? Notice what his employees say to him the end of verse 4, and they answered, that is, the employees answered, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. So we have a reciprocal concern, but it started with Boaz. Boaz is the one who says, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. His employees knew that Boaz was spiritually concerned for them. If you're an employer, or you're a manager of people, do the people working underneath you know that you're spiritually concerned for them? Say, but my workplace is secular. Boaz was in a secular society, a society that had turned their back against the Lord. And he was concerned for the spiritual well-being of his employees. Remember, these are the days when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The biography of Boaz includes honor, integrity, humility, diligence, godly character, and concern for others. And we have just barely started in his biography. These were the days when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, but Boaz was spiritually concerned for his people. It's likely, and we know that Boaz is not married, was not married to this point. It's likely that that is why he's not married. Boaz would have had, certainly because of his wealth, would have had the pick of any of the local girls in Bethlehem. But he has not married any of the local girls because, evidently, they did not rise to the character and interests of Boaz. Their character was in Boaz's money And their interests are in what they could get from Boaz. But Boaz was concerned about godly character. And so these local girls didn't rise to the character and interests because they were like the world around them in the nation of Israel who did what was right in their own eyes. Boaz was very different. But then it gets even more detailed as we back up. And we go into verse 2, and we recognize that Boaz was passionately interested in the things of the Lord. He was passionately interested in God. Notice verse 2. Verse 2 says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter." Now, we typically focus at this point on Ruth and Naomi in the conversation, and that's what the verse says, but the chapter started this way. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, and then immediately starts to talk about Naomi and Ruth. Well, I don't think that Samuel just said, oh, let me just throw out this detail and let me go on. By the way, there was a family member, oh yeah, I forgot to mention him earlier in chapter one. I'm going to get him here into chapter two, the chapter divisions aren't inspired, so... Samuel didn't know about those yet, but uh, if he didn't just throw it out there and say, oh yeah, here's one more bit of information, and then let me go on with the narrative. He throws out that information because everything in chapter 2 builds upon that. And so, who's going to be the one that Ruth is going to find favor with? Obviously, that is going to be Boaz. And so, Samuel has set us up so we understand who she, he's going to be talking about as she goes to the field to glean. But I have drawn out for us this idea that he has a passionate interest in God. As we turn to Ruth 2.2, it is interesting to note that the people of Israel to this point have forgotten God and they have forgotten, or rather his people, have lost their conviction to follow the Lord, the God of Israel. But Boaz has not. In fact, as we notice, thinking back to verse 4, I'm building here to get us back to verse 2, thinking uh, to Boaz's first words. As we read through the narrative, Boaz's first words that are recorded in the book and recorded throughout history, his first words are, the Lord be with you. That's his first words that are recorded in the pages of Scripture. Boaz's first recorded words reveal nothing less than a passionate belief that God is not only worthy of following, but he is worthy of talking about and thinking about during a hard day's work in the fields. So Boaz starts every day with, to his employees, listen, God is not only worth following, but I hope you actually sense his presence as you work in the fields today. And that was lived out in his actions that were demonstrated in verse 2. So there's no actions of Boaz in verse 2. Yes, there is. Because there's something at the end of the field to harvest. Boaz's reapers haven't harvested everything. That's where we're building to. Imagine, before we get to that point, imagine the impact of having somebody, your employer or your boss, or even you, if you are in that position, doing what Boaz has done, how much of an impact that would make on our society today. Interestingly enough, I heard of a manager doing this for their employees, those that they work with, just this past week, who is spiritually concerned For those that are underneath them, are you spiritually concerned? Are you passionate about who God is? And does that get demonstrated to those that you work with, those that you work over? It did for Boaz. And it did so much so that it builds us into this fourth commitment or this fourth character. And that he was passionately committed to self-sacrifice. And we see that. We've looked into verse 2 because it was tying together. And so we're going to go back now and fill in the gaps. Remember, this is a time when in the nation of Israel, famine had just 10 years earlier driven a to disobey God and to flee Israel. That's how bad it is. The nation was not yet fully restored. But Boaz allowed there to be gleaners at the end of his field. Ruth, who is a Moabite, and it's interesting that Samuel would draw that out at this point in the text. He's already told us by inference, but now he's telling us by pinpointed precision that Ruth is a Moabite, and what is she doing? She is looking for a field to glean because of the Levitical law. There's a character trait that we find in Ruth right here. She was willing to humble herself to the point of gleaning in an Israelite field when she was a Moabite to follow after the Levitical law. And we learn something about Boaz, that despite the ravages of the famine, whether it was now over or was still in full force, we're not told, we're not given that information. Assuming that it is now beginning to turn there would be the desire in Boaz to fill up his barns at this point. He's had years and years and years and years and years worth of loss. It's time to recoup some of that. And the way you recoup some of that is you glean or you harvest everything in the field. And the people of Israel were doing it. How do we know that? How do we know that they were gleaning to the end of the field? Because the common practice of the nation of Israel would eventually cause them to be sent off for 70 years to the land of Babylon. Do you know why 70 years? Because the Lord said that on the seventh year, the land was to rest. And when Israel refused to allow the land to rest on the seventh year, the Lord said, fine. And at the end of that time, he recouped the seventh year 70 times when it had been. Neglected, and so Israel is hauled off to Babylon. If they're willing to have crop year after year after year after year after year after year year in the field, and not stop to pause for the seventh year, they were certainly willing to glean or harvest, rather, all the way to the end of the fields. That was the character of the people of Israel. They would disregard the commandments of the Lord that were given, specifically the agricultural commandments, and they certainly would have been doing so here, but. Instead, we find in Boaz a passionate commitment to obedience and self-sacrifice. These were tough times. Who in their right mind would follow God's laws of generosity and mercy in times like these? By the way, as we think about it, the harvest methods of the time of Boaz didn't really change until the modern era in modern machinery the harvester, and you've likely seen them in uh, an antique store, or maybe you, maybe you used one and, at some point, but uh, uh, the sickle that would be used was not the long sickle that we think of. It was the short sickle, and so it was only about like that long, and it had a, a hook on it with kind of looked like a question mark, and it was sharpened on the inside. And the idea was you would grab hold with one hand, you'd grab hold of the stalks of the grain. With the other hand, you would give a short stroke swinging stroke at the stalks, and you would have a handful of stalks. you would take those and you would gently lay them on the ground or you would bundle them up to be glean or to be picked up by the cart that would come by later and taking it to the threshing floor that's how grain was harvested all by hand one stroke at a time and those who were really good at harvesting could would leave nothing in the field it was all hands-on work So you didn't leave any stalks behind. You grabbed what you could, you pulled them out, and you hooked that through. You didn't cut any other stalks, and you cleaned up every stalk that was standing. That's how it was often used, but the Lord has given specific instructions in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, that there was to be some left, that the harvesters were not to clean up everything in the field, but they were to leave some for those who are in poverty to come alongside and glean after. But you can imagine that that wasn't very much. In fact, one commentator illustrated it this way. Imagine making a living picking up aluminum cans and recycling them. That's the kind of life that Naomi and Ruth would have. That is the illustration that is used here. The more greedy the landowner, the less that was left for the gleaners. So even though the law demanded that there would be parts of the field left for the gleaners, it was up to the landowners to if they would actually follow that law or not. And you could imagine at this time, the time of famine or the time just after famine, that those in Israel who owned land were less inclined to leave some behind. They would try to recoup what they have lost over the years of famine and and raiding by the Midianites. Yet, again, verse 2 and 3, the Scripture says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean after, among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So Ruth departs. I've added one point here. It's not in your notes, but I've added one point. As we've looked through the character, the brief biographical sketch of Boaz, we've identified that he's one who's respected in his community. He was passionately, spiritually concerned. He was passionate, passionately interested in the things of God. He was passionately committed to self-sacrifice, which was evidenced by, his glean, by allowing there to be gleaning in his fields. But then the Lord rewards him. And really, this is a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord, or lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Some scholars believe that Boaz was the nephew of Elimelech. It says he was of the clan of Elimelech. And I think that that's probably accurate. Boaz was likely the nephew of Elimelech. And so maybe a brother's son of Elimelech. In verse 3, the end part of verse 3, Ruth happened to come into the field that belonged to Boaz, that was Boaz being of the family of Elimelech. In Hebrew, the sentence reads like this, and it's a little bit awkward, so let me just uh, read it the way that it would be literally said, and understand it sounds awkward. But pick up on the wordplay. She chanced to chance upon the field. That's what it literally reads. That Ruth chanced to chance upon the field. What the world may view as a coincidence was divine providence. It was not a coincidence. She chanced to chance into the right field. She went where the harvesters were harvesting, the gleaning was to be done, And she chanced to chance upon the field. In many ways, as I said a moment ago, for Ruth and Boaz, this is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, put into flesh. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Boaz and Ruth are about to meet. Because we want to spend time on that as well, we're going to study that next week. We're going to focus in on The meeting, as they meet, and then Boaz provides the kinsman-redeemer role. So we're going to spend time moving through chapter 2, Lord willing, next week. But as they're about to meet, we recognize, and you and I must recognize, that this is not by coincidence or by chance. You may be one who, at the end of chapter 1, goes, Wow, bad things upon bad things upon bad things. How lucky do they get at the end of chapter 2? But it is not luck at the end of chapter 2. This is God watching over and protecting those who serve him and love him, even when no one else does. Ruth didn't have the example, yet she followed the law. Boaz was a worthy man. But very few, if any, of his neighbors were worthy people. Their meeting, Boaz and Ruth, was not by coincidence, nor was it by chance. They are proof that, the guidance from the Lord, that guidance from the Lord is promised, but it often comes on the heels of ordinary decisions and circumstances which are beyond our control. I do not believe that Ruth left the house one day and told... Naomi, by the way, I'm going to a field to find a husband. She said, I'm going to find some grain so that we can have enough grain for bread for lunch. She made an ordinary decision, and the circumstances upon which she met Boaz were outside of her control. Boaz, or rather Ruth, is now gleaning in the fields of a potential redeemer, and wouldn't you know it, But Boaz came to visit those fields that very morning, verse 5, which is next week. The idea that we should take this evening is this, let us be like Boaz. The reason I wanted to spend so much time on the character of Boaz and, and flesh it out a little bit is he was in the flesh. He was in an age where... The followers of God, or the supposed followers of God, and the nation of Israel had turned their backs on God. But he was diligent, faithful, and following after the things of the Lord. It does not matter the wickedness that is outside these walls or outside this fellowship. Let us be like Boaz. Let us be those who are respected in our community. Let us be those who are passionate about being spiritually concerned, be passionate in our interests in God. And be passionate in our commitment to be self-sacrificial. Selfless in all that we do and say. Boaz was a passionate follower of God even when no one else would be. So the question before us tonight is, will you be a passionate follower of God like Boaz? In an immoral, ungodly age, when you don't understand what's going to happen, Boaz didn't go to the field thinking that today's the day he's going to find his wife. Just like Ruth didn't think, today's the day I'm going to find my husband. But by God's direction, and in God's timing, by God's providence, they were at the same field at the same time. Both being people worthy of being mentioned in the pages of Scripture. Let us be like them. Let's close this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you. For the example of Ruth and Boaz, and especially tonight as we have looked into Boaz's life, and really, we were given just one word and several examples, that one word being worthy. Lord, I pray that we would be people who, like Boaz, are willing to stand in an ungodly, wicked age for the things of the Lord. We know that there will be challenges from work, that there will be difficulties from those who are not of Christ. pray that we would stand resolute and firm. I pray for those who are leaders of people, whether that be at work or whether that be at home, wherever it may be as we lead others, I pray that we would have the same attitude as Boaz, where he was spiritually concerned for the welfare of others, that he would so regularly greet his workers the way that he did, that his workers would be responsive to it as well. Or cause us to be that kind of person. That when we enter into a room, we are not lighting it up because of our personality, or because of our charisma, but because of the one that we serve. That they would see Christ in us. That we would be truly spiritually committed to ensuring that one another is strengthened and renewed, concerned for their spiritual well-being. Lord, we thank you for these characteristics that we have seen tonight in the life of Boaz, and I pray that you would cause them to be reflected back upon our thinking this week. That as we put them into practice, we would become more and more like you. Lord, this has been the theme both in... The book of First Thessalonians, and now in the book of Ruth tonight, similar themes. I pray that we would learn what we need to learn and be salt and, and lights in a tasteless and dark world. That your name would be glorified in all that we say and do. That we depart here renewed, ready for this week, encouraged to follow you with every ounce of our being. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for it, and it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.